Podcasting, The Final Frontier. This is the Hammer Podcast. It's 30-minute mission to rehash geeky topics, to seek out new bastions of nerdiness, to timidly go where the more talented have gone before. Greetings, and welcome to the Hammer Podcast, the official podcast of thehammerstrikes.com. I'm your host, Gene Hendricks, and I'm pretty sure that, like me, you didn't think you'd be hearing that anytime soon. And that is because... life. You know, real life does tend to get in the way of this hobby. Now, I believe I explained it uh, somewhere else, but I will reiterate it here, uh, being that this is the... 25th episode of the Hammer Podcast. Uh, this episode was supposed to come out in fall of 2016, and I'm recording this in February of 2018. So you can tell that things got a little hectic, and that is because my wife, Michelle, got a job. And this is after a long drought of not working. She got a job at Amazon, uh, which happens to be have a fulfillment center in our town, which makes commuting really nice for her. But uh, she's working nights. Uh, she's working Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday nights, 10 hours each. So that basically leaves me home to watch Kira, and she is nine years old now, but uh, she's not... Neither Kira nor I think she's doing well enough to just be on her own. So I'm spending time with her those four nights. And that means that Wednesday night is the only weeknight where we're home together as a family, so I don't do podcasting then, uh, unless I, you know, I have to uh, be a guest on another show. So I'm kind of limited, and, you know, on the weekends, I like spending time with the family. I don't want to say, hey, you know, we're all here together, so I'm going to go off in this room and shut myself away. So, uh, you know, this has definitely taken a back seat to all of that. So, I am not going to promise that I'm back. I'm going to promise to try and get stuff out this year. Um, this being the first, hopefully, episode, and not the only episode. But we will see how this goes. Um, it all really depends on how life is. And I'm sure you all agree that family comes before podcast. So, I will continue to guest star. On as many shows as I can. I will try and work this in more often. Uh, I'll see if I can wrangle Kira and Michelle into doing an episode or two with me and see how that goes. Uh, I know Kira and I have been watching a lot of anime together, which is very interesting because I have to explain certain things to her uh, as far as tropes and things like that. But she's really enjoying it, and she she enjoys... Some of, I wouldn't say adult anime, but uh, definitely in the TV-14 range. Now, before anyone gets upset at me, you know, you're a nine-year-old, watch a TV-14 show. Yeah, well, she was about three when I showed her Batman the Animated Series, and that was uh, TV-Y7. So, she's always been a little bit above, but I am previewing most of the stuff, and if I know it's beyond where she is right now, I don't let her watch it. Uh, so, it, it should be interesting, you know, family life, and maybe bleeding into podcasts, but we shall see. In any case, uh, I'm sorry, I will not be doing listener feedback this time, just because I really am squeezing this recording in between Michelle and Kira going to bed and me going on to another podcast, so I'm, I don't have a huge amount of time. So let me just set up that uh, this, like I said, was recorded uh, about a year and a half ago, and it's, I think, worth the wait. Uh, you'll you'll hear the producer, Paul Spataro, and I talking about one of the more underrated sequels, I would say. I, I enjoy this movie. Paul gets some enjoyment out of it, and I'll just leave the rest for the discussion, so... Hopefully we'll be, uh, you'll be hearing my voice on this feed in the near future, but again, I'm not going to promise anything. Alright, on with the show.
am Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert. All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert. Shields up. What shields? You're Starfleet officers. Now start acting like it. Oh, it's just Garrett. Plain, simple, Garrett. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does ring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. It's what's all to become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. Only on TwoTrueFreaks.com. Welcome back. And yet again, I have a returning guest this month. And it seems to be the, the year for returning guests, which is great. But this guy, the last time he was on, not only was it a Legends of Superheroes episode, but it was also a duo. <laughs> but this time we have gotten rid of uh, Dr. Bill, but we have with us the producer, the host of the brand new, wonderful Is It Jaws podcast, Mr. Paul Spataro. How are you, sir? Good, Gene. Thanks for having me back again. That was the first time you and I ever spoke that last time. Yes, yes, That's how was. long ago that was. And since then, we have spoken numerous times, just not on this show. <laughs> exactly. You've been on Back to the Bins numerous times. We've done other, we even did Comics Monthly Monday together. Yes, and, that was fun. Uh, with and my we family. met face-to-face, -face, so we've done a lot since then. Yeah, it's, and it hasn't been that long, really. It's only, what, like a year and a half or something since since that episode? Shows you how much research I do ahead of time. <laughs> I couldn't tell you exactly what that was. But I, I know the face-to-face -face was a, over a year ago, and by then I already felt like I knew you pretty well. So, no, it, it, that's from all the emails I send in to listen to the prophets. <laughs> that's it. Well, we got to get them from somewhere. <laughs> well, you didn't get one this week because I was on, <laughs> and I'm not going to be that meta about it. <laughs> but anyway, well, that's what I do with the, when when uh, certain people are on. I just have them read their own emails. Did no, we do that to you? Yes, that that wasn't the episode that was this week. That'll be in two weeks. Okay, because I think that's kind of meta. Yeah, which which was funny because I cracked Andy up just on the title of the one email. The um, I think I'm a clone now. Oh yeah, that's a great line. Well, I have to thank Weird Al for that one. But we, you know, we're so far ahead on the recording that by the time by the time they get posted, I don't remember what's on them anymore. Yeah. Well, and like I said, on that particular show, I listen anyway just to see what got cut and what's in because. The conversations range all over the place. I'm I'm always interested to hear where you decided the episode starts and ends and what goes on afterwards. Yeah, that's that's pretty much the bulk of the editing with that show is how how much of the preamble conversation do I actually either cut out or cut off of the beginning and throw it at the end. <laughs> but most of most of like once we start recording, most of what you hear is pretty much uncut. Yeah, because it seems like there's a nice flow to it. Uh, you guys, have, you're in season three now, so you've had plenty of time to get all the kinks worked out. So one, once the show's on, it's on. Yeah, that's pretty much the reality of it. And I tell you, I have a ball doing that. I, I, I have a ball doing all these shows. Well, if I, lo you, I love if, doing the shows I'm on, and I love coming on and guesting on other people's shows. Well, if you didn't like it, why would you do it? It's not like you're making money on this thing. I'm not. Well, maybe, well, well maybe, this time I thought this was my retirement fund. <laughs> maybe you are. I mean, you have the seniority in, in Demonza Corps over me, so you you might have gotten to actual pay scale. I'm still getting these these company vouchers. I'm just I'm just happy that I don't have to pay to be on. Oh, there is that. Yes. Yeah. Well, anyway, you know, we're not talking about DS9 or anything like that on this episode. We're actually talking about Jaws 2. <laughs> I don't don't ask me how we got there from where we just were, but that's how it works. And, <laughs> and we're continuing my look this year uh, at generational stories. And most people are familiar with Jaws. Not as many are as familiar with Jaws 2. Now, in Jaws 2, 
you have Brody's kids. Michael is now 17, and Sean is... They don't actually mention his age, but I would say he's about 10. Would, would you agree with that, Paul? I'd say it's probably about right. 10, 11, somewhere in that range. Something there. And Michael has his friends who all have their own sailboats, and they go out together. You know, it's a lot better than being a biker gang. You know, they're in a, a sailboat club, essentially. So... Part of the story of this is Chief Brody wants Michael to get a job. Michael, being a teenager, doesn't want to get a job and ends up having to sneak out to be with his friends and, more importantly, the cute girl who turns into a basket case by the end of the movie. So, I am a child of the 80s. I mean, I was born in 75, but I was I was a kid in, in the 80s and I was a teenager, late 80s, early 90s. So... I have a different life experience from this because this is this movie came out in 1978. And quick aside, I find it very amusing that Jaws came out the year I was born, and Jaws 2 came out the year my sister was born. You think there was something uh, going on with that? Yeah, I mean, I would rate me as a Jaws and her as a Jaws three. There you go. <laughs> I'm not so sure she would concur. I'm safe. She doesn't listen to the show. <laughs> Probably a good thing. Yes, uh, but. Now, Paul, when, when this movie came out, you were what, like 14? Somewhere around? You said 78? 78. So I would have been 15. 15. So you had a lot more in common with Michael at this point, uh, when this movie came out. Now, I, let me preface this by saying, I know I'm not a normal person, and I was not a normal teenager. <laughs> I hardly ever got grounded. I always let my parents know where I was, even when I was over a friend's house. Like, if I'm 16, 17, I'm over a friend's house. We're going to go to the friends. I call my parents first. Hey, you know, we're at Andy's house. We're going to go over to Frank's house. You know, and I was always home by curfew, which tended to be like midnight, so it wasn't really that big of a problem. Uh, were you more like me or more like Mike in this? I was closer to you. I wouldn't necessarily, if, if my curfew was midnight, uh, my trick, <laughs> see, I, I have two older brothers and an older sister. I'm the youngest of four. Aha. And my two older brothers would routinely, if their curfew was midnight, they'd come strolling in the house at 1, 1.30, 2 o'clock, and the shit would hit the fan. <laughs> just, just pretty much it was routine. Then I got to be the same age, and I would go out, and my curfew would be midnight, and I realized... Boy, if I call up the house at 11.59 and I'm half an hour away and there's not a chance in heck I could get home by midnight, but I say to them, oh, I'm at so-and-so's house, is it okay if I stay out longer? There was no doubt they always said yes. Mm -hmm. And they were always very happy that I called and didn't leave them there worrying. And to me, it always perplexed me that they, that they would just always push the envelope and then get in trouble for it, whereas I was able to, to do the same things they were doing without getting into any trouble just on the basis of making a phone call. Right. Yeah. So I wasn't quite you because I wasn't home at midnight like I was supposed to be, but I also wasn't necessarily breaking the rules either. Right. You. You never. I. I never snuck out. I. No. Never, me neither. You know. Whereas Mike in this. But then again, I never had the opportunity to take a cute girl that didn't go to school with me out on a boat. It, you know, all on my own. Well, I also never had the opportunity to take a cute girl who did go to school with me out on a boat either. Well, yeah. In fact, I very rarely had a, had the opportunity to take cute girls out anywhere on anything at any time. I'm right there <laughs> with you. It's kind of depressing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we both ended up becoming parents, so it actually worked out all in the end. Yes, somewhere along the line we found our sea legs, so to speak. <laughs> but but I, I can't say I was much of a ladies' man as a teenager. No, I definitely was not. Not that I didn't try sometimes, but never actually worked out. But then again, I didn't look like Mike in this movie either. Nor did I. So that may have something to do with it. So, you know, watching this, I I see somebody doing something that when I was a kid, when I used to watch this when I was younger, I wouldn't say when I was a kid because when I watched it as a kid, I identified more with Sean than with Michael. But watching it, when I was a teenager, because this, this is one of those movies that if it was on, I would stop and watch it. So it, it's not one that I would throw, 
throw in the VCR that often. I don't even remember if we had it on VHS. I know we had Jaws. I have always, ever since home video started, I've always had a copy of Jaws. Yes. I've never had any of the sequels. We had Jaws 3, but that was... I feel sorry for you. Yeah. That's because we recorded it off of HBO, because HBO played it ad ad nauseum. I personally believe Jaws 3 is the worst of the four movies. I have not watched Jaws the Revenge in quite a long time, but from episode two of Is It Jaws, I would tend to agree with you. And part of that is also because I have a bias against 3D films that have to prove they are 3D films. Like having the shark burst through the glass. Or or having the shark jaws fly out of the screen at you and smile at the end. (laughs) Yeah. I, I I have a bias against 3D movies in general. I did, however, see Jaws 3D in the movie theater. Okay. Well, you're one up on me because I've only ever seen it as Jaws 3. I've never seen the 3D portion of it. But you did not you did not miss out on anything. I didn't think I did. <laughs> so, I'm I was very familiar with that and I remember when I was younger, I I knew a lot about Jaws. I knew a lot about Jaws 3. So, Sean's aversion to the water in Jaws 3 didn't make much sense until I watched Jaws 2 more, and that's like, oh, the girl that was taking care of him got eaten right in front of him. Yeah, that messed me up, too. Yeah, you'd think. (laughs) But we also have the, the, not just the parents and the kids, because you have Brody and Michael, but you also have uh, Larry and Larry. Larry Sr., the mayor, and Larry Jr., and the... The dynamic there seems a lot different in that it's almost like Larry Jr. can do whatever the hell he wants because his dad's the mayor and one of the more affluent men on the island, I would assume. I mean, he's the uh, chief real estate broker, as we see in the first movie. So Mm -hmm. you have Mike is forced to get a job. And that's another thing that I didn't share with Mike is... I wanted a job. I actually asked my parents if I could get a job when I was 16. They had to sign a paper to say, yes, he can work at this age. 16? 16. You're a piker. (laughs) I started working when I was 12. Yeah, well. That was back when a 12-year-old could deliver newspapers and it wasn't a (laughs) 45-year-old. Yeah, I never had a paper route because all... All through school, I was never a morning person. I'm I'm actually still not a morning person, although my brain tells me I am, because I can't sleep past 6 a.m. I don't care what day of the week it is. <laughs> Even if the sun's not up yet, it's 6 o'clock, I, I wake up, I look over the clock, and God, urgh, <laughs> I can't. Yeah, no, I know that feeling. Uh, so you have Mike getting a job, and Larry is essentially making fun of him. For it. He's I I'm convinced that that one day when Mike is on the beach painting the uh, the changing rooms that Larry took the, the sailboat down that beach on purpose to say, hey, look at what I'm doing while you're working. And you don't you don't see a lot of parental interaction except between the chief and Mike. And that seems at least from my perspective, that seems like a, a re- fairly normal father-son relationship. What What do you think on that, Paul? Yeah, I would I would say, I mean, that that's the, like you said, it's the only one that's fleshed out at all, and there's only really the two that you see. You see Larry and Larry Jr., and you see Mike and, and, the, and Chief Brody. You don't really see any of, none of the other kids seem to have any parental influence in their lives, which... You know, I guess that's more or less to kind of streamline the movie. Right. Uh, Larry Jr. almost struck me as kind of the caricature of, of the spoiled brat. Yeah. Uh, kind of like, kind of like Reggie in the Archie comics. <laughs> whereas, whereas Mike and the Chief, that does seem to be a little bit more realistic of a relationship. There's a little antagonism going on, but you also know that deep down inside there's some respect and love there. Oh yeah. I mean, you, you see when, Mike doesn't want to get the job, but he does it anyway. And when uh, when they're at the lighthouse, when they find the killer whale, and Brody says, you're coming back with me, but my boat's here, but I'm on a date, she'll understand you're coming back with me. 
no matter what Mike does, the Chief says, you're coming back with me, and Mike does it. Yeah, Mike understands that that's not, it's not up for debate. Right. Yeah, he, he tries, but once Dad has said, this is the way it is, okay, <laughs> I'm resigned to it. Take my boat back, please. One of the things about this movie is that it's it's pretty commonly thought that uh, that the main performance was mailed in. That Roy Scheider, you know, kind of didn't want to do this, did it because he was under contract to do it, so he had to, and that he really didn't give it his A game. I tend to disagree with the common conception there because I thought that his performance is pretty good. I think the weaknesses are more to the script than it is his performance. And I do think that's kind of shown in this relationship with his son in the movie. I think you see the underlying, uh, you know, attitudes they have towards each other and feelings they have towards each other. And that's, that's acting. So, you know, that's one of my, one of my things about this movie that I think is underrated. Oh yeah. With, I, with Roy I, Scheider's performance. I agree because he, he may not have wanted to do the movie. But it didn't mean that he didn't give it his best performance. It, there, there are several scenes in here where he doesn't say a word, but you know exactly what's going through his head. Like when they, uh, the ski boat blows up and he's at the old lady's house, which I have to say, that position of that house on the beach, on the wrong side of the dunes, dumbest construction idea ever. <laughs> Yeah, I can't argue with that. So. <laughs> but he's standing on the porch, and you can see the wheels turn in his head. Like, what would cause this? You know, how how did this happen? Why can't we find them? And the whole time, Tina's there, Chief, can we go? And he doesn't hear her. He's just, he's lost in his own world. And it's not him just standing there. He's at, he, he is acting in that moment. And you can tell it by the expression on his face. So, if if he was mailing it in, he would have just been leaning on a post there, going through the motions, and he wasn't, in my opinion. Yeah, I think Roy Scheider, you know, in a, as a general rule, I think he's an underrated actor. Mm. I think he gets credit for Jaws, but a lot of people overlook the rest of his career, and I think he he's one of these guys who pretty much routinely gave a good performance in just about everything he did. He was in some movies that probably weren't good choices to be in. Right. But I don't think his performance ever reflected that. I think, you know, the script did, the directing did, you know, sometimes just the story idea did. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but I think his performance was always pretty much on, on the money. I agree. Yeah. Everything I've seen him in, even Sequest, which I am a fan of, uh, I thought he did a great job. He always brought something to it. Now, I did do a little reading on this movie. This this afternoon, just to get it in my head before I watched it, and I want your opinion on the idea that they were originally going with with the first director in that Amity was essentially a ghost town, and the whole the the new condo development was what was going to breathe life back into it, and that's why they were shoving Brody off with the shark thing because if this does not work. Everyone here is pretty much dead. Yeah, I, I don't mind that. Uh, you know, we, when I talked to Rob Kelly about this, we talked about how there was uh, an underlying plot line originally with the mob, where they had lent money to the island, uh, to the government of the island, to kind of get them afloat again. And I'm glad they did away with that. Right. Because I, I, I think it was just an unnecessary subplot. The problem with this movie in general, to me, is... They did take into account that generational aspect that you talk about, and I think that's a positive to it. But when you get to the shark moments, they just said, let's kind of revisit what we've already done because we know the audience liked that. And then they revisited it and didn't do it as well. You know, they tried to up the ante a couple of times, have the shark do more spectacular things. Uh, I think if they had spent a little bit more time on developing some of these characters and and things that things would have been better and that the movie would have been better uh, jaws doesn't work because the shark special effects are so wonderful in fact jaws works often because the special effects were so poor that they had to keep the shark hidden so in jaws 2 to just say we're going to up the shark effects i think they missed no pun intended they missed the boat hmm. on what made it so successful the first time around 
And I think if they had really tried to take some of these teenagers and make them real three-dimensional characters and not stereotypes, they would have had a much better film when they were done. Yeah, if you take out, and it's kind of important to the plot, but not not so much. If you take out the th- the scene with the water skier and that whole shark bit, and you don't show what happened with the scuba diver, you just he suddenly comes up, he panicked. You just get the story. You don't see like we were watching this today, and Michelle leaned over to me and says, is this the an extended cut? I said, no. And this happened to be during the scuba scene. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I don't remember any of this from when I watched it on TV. I said, well, in for TV, this is something that's really easy to cut out because you just have them go in and then you have the shark show up and the guy panic and come up. Whereas th- this was a lot of underwater... Oh, isn't this beautiful down here? Oh, look at that poor lobster who has no claws on him, so he can't bite the actor. <laughs> and it, you don't need any of that. You could just you cut that section out. You can cut the water skier out. And you, that means that the shark isn't really shown for the first half of the movie. And use that extra time for the character development. Or you, one thing you do is you put the scene back in where... the mayor, Larry, voted against getting rid of Chief Brody. Oh, that's that's a pivotal point with me, too. I agree 100% that that scene needed to be left in. Yeah, because you, you, the whole time, if that scene's in there, you see that Larry is trying his best to keep Brody around, no matter what he's done. And the look, the pained look on his face, even in the scene that's still in the movie, in that council meeting... He's mentally telling Martin to shut his mouth. He's sitting there like, uh, don't do this now. I'm trying to save your job. Shut up. But if you have that scene where he's Larry is actually willing to stand up to everybody else and say, no, I want him there. It's It means that the character it did not forget what happened seven years in the past. Now, I'm the timeline's all screwy here. Because the movies are three years apart. Brody in the movie itself says it's been four years, but Michael is about seven years older. <laughs> so I'm yeah. calling it a seven-year difference. No, but no matter which, no matter what you go as far as the number of years, you could say it's the, it's the next season. The Larry had a story arc mm. in the first movie where he went from being stubborn, and they showed you why he was being so stubborn, and I thought that was key too. They showed you the pressure he was under from the citizens in the town, the businesses in the town, to keep the beach open, and the, and the measures he took to follow up on that. But eventually, that came back to disaster, and he realized it, which is why he ultimately signed the order to have Quint go after the shark. So now, to just have him be in total denial, the way the cut, this cut of the film looks, it's just as if that never happened, that, that character growth. Right, And that really disturbed me in watching the second one, because he is no longer a three-dimensional character. He's no longer a character who's had that growth. He's just a plot point now. And I don't think, uh, I'm trying to remember the actor's name, I don't think he treated it that way. Like you said, he, he had those facial expressions where he was trying to show that his character had motivation to say what he was saying and everything. But I, I think the script let people down in this movie a lot. It did, yeah, and it's it's a shame because it could have built so much on the original. Some of it tried to, but, I mean, the original idea for this, the, the very first idea was a prequel to go back to the Indianapolis, which I don't necessarily think you can connect beyond the fact that Quint was there. You and, you couldn't, and you couldn't have Robert Shaw play the part. I mean, he was still alive, I believe, when this movie came out. Uh, but you couldn't do it because that was supposed to be, you know, whatever, 25, 30 years earlier. Right. So you'd have to have a younger actor who looked like Robert Shaw play the part. So it wouldn't have necessarily the same connection. It's a movie I still would like to see, though. Yeah, well, I saw... It wasn't a movie so much as a reenactment kind of thing on the History Channel about the Indianapolis... And that was really interesting. Uh, 
I can't remember what when it was. It had to be like at ten years ago now, but it was it was a, a two hour documentary that they had recreations of the men in the water and how they had to cover themselves with the oil to act as a sunscreen and things like that. But a movie based on that, especially if you got someone like Spielberg or Ron Howard to direct it, would actually be really, really good. The closest thing I can think of was that movie, it's got to be maybe seven, eight years ago, Open Water. Mm. Not that it's anything to do with the Indianapolis, but that had the people out on a boat, and then they were stranded, and you know their legs were in the water, and eventually the sharks came. Right. And they were trying to come out with ways to get by it. And if I understand correctly, that was based on a true story, but they really had to just kind of guess at what happened once they were out there because the people were killed. Well, that, it's Spoiler just, alert, by the way, anybody who wants to see open water. It's like the perfect storm, you know? I mean, yeah, really, once you lose communication with the Andrea Gale, it's all just made up. <laughs> yeah, you, you pretty don't much. Know. Which is, you know, the reality of most of these based on a true story movies. You know, nobody, unless you have an autobiography or somebody who's in the room who took down the dialogue or whatever, it's always made up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, well, this this person, he's actually the amalgam of these three real people. <laughs> Just because that one had a line, that one had a line, and that one had a line, so we give this one guy three lines. Yeah. that That's the way it works. And uh, But back to the topic at hand... <laughs> Sorry, sorry to change, sorry, sorry to just take you on all these tangents. Yeah, because that never happens on this show. <laughs> the, well, it's it's the story of my life. Yeah. Tangenting is my business. The one thing that I really liked about the way Chief Brody, or you know, the way Roy Scheider handled it, but the way it was written too, is when he's on the launch and he comes across Mike and the, the two guys coming back. After Mike was knocked out, but he's woken up since then. Michael is distraught that Sean came with them and is now out there. But he's still seeking his father's blessing for it. He said, he wanted to come. That's all right, isn't it? You know. Mm. And then Brody just looks at him and says, forget it. Where are they? You know, it's just because... It, He's not going to get into this now. He's probably not ever going to get into it, Mike, about bringing Sean out because the kid's been punished enough by himself. But it's a whereas some of the other screen parental uh, parent son relationships like this, he would have you know just tore into him like there. What what are you thinking? What no? This is a guy who's concerned about both his children, one of which he didn't know was out there till right now. And he's just, he's focused completely on saving his son. Michael's fine. He's safe. Fine. You go to the lighthouse and wait. I'm going to go get my other boy. Right. Which which is really exactly the way it should be. Yeah. And that's one of the things also that I think is misunderstood a little bit in Jaws. Because I think, you know, Quint is shown as such a stereotypical tough guy. And Hooper is able to kind of handle himself in whatever situation, even though he's not especially tough, to you know, in his demeanor. And I think people think of Brody as somewhat, like, wimpy, and he's not at all. No, no. In fact, he's, he's a hell of a lot braver than the other two, in my opinion, because the entire time he's on the Orca, he's scared stiff. He has a fear of the water. And he's volunteered to go out on this boat with this nut nut job and Hooper, who ain't wrapped too tight, possibly not to come back. So the entire time he's sitting there, even when he looks relaxed inside, he's scared stiff. So to do what he does while feeling that, he is the bravest one out there. Yeah. Yeah, bravery isn't not being afraid. Bravery is how you deal with your fear. Right. And, uh, and and Roy Scheider, I mean, well, Martin Brody, you know, clearly is, is willing to be up to the challenge no matter what comes his way, because <laughs> that's what he does in, in both of these movies. Uh, now, sometimes the scenes aren't exactly realistic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, just the concept that this shark is coming straight for you, 
and you're going to hold the electric line <laughs> <laughs> until the and, last second. <laughs> until the last second and direct it right into the shark's mouth. Yeah. I mean, there's just you uh, know, there's all sorts of levels of, uh, of of reason to disbelieve that. Well, yeah, but and it, it's one of the things about you know the the first Jaws movie. Apparently, Peter Benchley thought the ending as they wrote it was unrealistic with him shooting the gas tank and having the shark explode. And Spielberg's response to that was, if I've got them for the first, whatever it is, hour and 50 minutes of this movie, they're going to accept whatever I, whatever I do at the end now. Yeah. I, I can stretch reality a little bit here. And so, to, to be quite honest about it, I've read Jaws. I've read the novel. And the movie is a thousand times better, in my opinion, because in the novel, I was rooting for the shark. <laughs> there is no character that is redeemable in that novel. I wanted the shark to eat all of them. And the fact that it dies because it gets twisted in the lines and essentially drowns is, you just realize, like, oh, okay. You do that in the movie and people are going to riot. Yeah, it, well, it certainly wouldn't, we wouldn't be talking about it now. No, definitely not. Well, Jaws, Jaws is one of several movies that I would say transcend the source material and is better than the source material. I agree, yes. You know, there aren't many. More often than not, if you've read a book and then you go see the uh, the movie version of it, more often than not, you're going to walk away and say the book was better. Mm-hmm. You know, Every once in a while, you get one that's that's the reverse of that, and this is one of them. I agree. Yeah, this, this is one of the very, very few... Uh, another one which pisses off a, a friend of mine, hi Sean, is uh, I I believe that the movie League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is infinitely better than the Alan Moore comic. Um, you, you cut out for a second. Which is the movie? Uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And Skype looks like it's about to die again. Well, hopefully it does not. Uh, I, I am not much of a fan of either the comic or the movie on that one, to be honest with you. And okay. I've read the comic and I've seen the movie. Yeah, the movie I think is better. I I enjoy it more just as a action romp. I don't like some of the characterizations. I don't like the the way they portray you know different the different characters. But again, you read the comic and it's I can't really root for any of these people. And then some of the ancillary stuff that goes with it, it's you just read it and it's like, what is going on here? So. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, but yeah, Jaws is one of the, one of the very very few, and <sighs> Jaws two. <laughs> we have to get back to that one, don't we? Yes, we do. Jaws <laughs> two is it's a decent enough movie, but you can't really live up to Jaws. You know, there's there's no way a sequel was ever going to be better than that original. Yeah, it's I mean it's it earned um mess of money <laughs> it was very a very brief time the highest grossing sequel ever made until 1980 but that's see i think they had the grain of a, of a good idea yes i think when they said let's go with the next generation and let's see how it hits them and how they deal with it i think that was a good concept to run with the whole idea of these teenagers now you needed to come up with some believable way that one or more than one of these teenagers was going to walk away from it alive without Chief Brody saving their butts. Because ultimately, by having that happen, this movie becomes a subpar rehash of the first movie. Right. So I, I think you needed to tread some new ground there. And, and it's it's difficult to do, because the bean counters are saying, this is what people want, give them more of it. Hmm. And and no, there's no question about it. The bean counters and the creative people are very rarely on the same page. So yeah. in this instance, you know, you needed somebody with what you, what you needed is you needed somebody like Steven Spielberg to say, I want to come back and do Jaws 2, but here's how I want to do it. And even at that point in his career, I think he might have had the clout to get away with that coming off the first one and how successful he was. Yeah, and, but he didn't want to do it because he went through such a, a, a huge hell filming the first one and he didn't want to repeat it. And, and yeah. you can't really blame the guy. No, not at all. And and honestly, that while that is my opinion of this movie, uh, I think he did not live up to my uh, what I'm saying here when he did the sequel to Jurassic Park. Mm. Well, 
then then again you had the sequel to Jurassic Park the the sequel novel to Jurassic Park actually undid part of the end of Jurassic Park because in the movie Jeff Goldblum's character lives in the novel he dies mhm but in the sequel novel he's the main character yeah so Michael Crichton went back and rewrote his own history because he got letters saying, I want more dinosaurs. Not exactly the best reason to write a novel. Yeah, well, I, I thought Jurassic Park, when I read it, which was before the movie came out, mm-hmm. I thought it was awesome. I thought it was great. I agree. I, when, I enjoy that movie. That, uh, when The Lost World came out, I enjoyed the book, and then I enjoyed the movie. And Although I do feel the book is slightly superior to the movie. Mm. Um, when The Lost World, the book, came out, I read that, and... I saw it as kind of a ho-hum sequel to the book Jurassic Park. And then the movie came out, and I thought the same exact thing. So uh, it almost felt like The Lost World on both levels was more of a money grab than a creative effort. Yeah. And now here I am giving Spielberg credit saying, no, he wouldn't do that. He would go for the, <laughs> you know, the, the, the more clever, more creative choice. Well, well, back in the 70s, he might have. Yeah, you know, because you're you're talking a 20 year time span where he he ceased. He's still a great director, but he ceased being the young "I want to do it my way" director to being the "I'm my name goes above the title." It is Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park. It is Steven Spielberg's whatever. Steven Spielberg presents Tiny Toon Adventures, <laughs> which I'm not making up either. No, I know you. Don't. So he he became more of a businessman than uh young I want to go out and do this my way, you know, filming in the rough kind of director. So in 78, he might have done his own thing and it might have been a better sequel. We'll never know, really. So but what we got is not bad. I I defy anyone to watch that and say that is a bad movie because it is not. It is not on the same level as the first one, but it is not Jaws 3. Well, and I think that's where, where it falls. Mm-hmm. It falls in comparison to the first. If there had never been a Jaws, or if you had never seen Jaws, if you, in, in watching these movies, if you had not let your daughter see Jaws and you just sat her down to watch Jaws 2, she might have been exhilarated by it. Yeah. But having seen Jaws, eventually she got bored and walked away. Or it could just been that's the mood she was in. <laughs> it could be, but I, I, I think there is at least some validity to that argument. That if you had not seen Jaws, if you watched Jaws two having never seen Jaws, you are more likely to to like it more than you would as the sequel. I agree. I, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, it's because it's it's a good enough movie. It is. Uh, Probably more along the lines of that era's horror trope in you see the monster often and sometimes when you're not expecting it, but sometimes you're seeing it well before the characters do. So yeah, it's it. I would compare it to like a Halloween where you see Michael Myers. You see him show up at these various places. No. No one but the audience knows who he is, but you're seeing him a lot, and it kind it builds until you get the last half hour of the movie is so oh, well. Who's going to die next, and in what manner? Which is exactly what Jaws Two is. Once they're out there alone on the sailboats, it's who's getting eaten next. I mean, it's he even ate a damn helicopter. You know, well, I, I I would disagree with you to the extent mm. that I think Halloween is a superior horror film to Jaws Two. I, I I think it it builds suspense better, and I think it 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 is more frightening. I agree. I'm just saying that it's they're in the same uh, class as far as tropes of that era's horror movies. I th- I think where you really see the better side of Jaws two is in comparing it to the other movies that try to exploit what Jaws had done. Mm. Look at a movie like Grizzly that came out in that era. And, and how badly that was put together. Never saw it. <laughs> sort of in the movie theater. Uh, but, you know, that that is the difference between success and jump scares. Right. Is really what it comes down to. 
and, and this movie, you know, this movie has some suspense to it. And it has some genuinely frightening, frightening scenes. And I, I, again, I don't think it's a bad movie. I just look at it and think, I see where it could have been better. Yeah. Yeah. And also part of that is looking at it from a, a more mature movie going perspective, at least in, for me, because I've done an, enough viewing of movies. I've also made some videos on my own so I can pick out like, it, it was funny, we watched, we went this past Sunday, and it was the 30th anniversary of the movie Labyrinth with David Bowie, and we we all went to the theater, because they were showing it, and we're, we watched it, and then we came home, and we have it on DVD, because it's one of my wife's favorite all-time movies, and I put in the behind-the-scenes featurette. And they're going through how they did the fire gang, and oh, everyone's in black velvet, and Kira turned to me and said, I thought something looked off, because no- normally if you just see a, a char- an actor in front of a background, they don't have an outline. Hmm. So, so I'm able to pick that out now because I've done blue screen work, so I know what, what to look for. She's just picking it out just by looking at it and saying, hey, that doesn't look right. <laughs> so, it, so, you know, from my perspective, I, I know how movies are made. Because I am a behind-the-scenes junkie. I will watch every behind-the-scenes feature you put on DVD. I will listen to every commentary track that comes out, which annoys Michelle no end. <laughs> uh, so I I know how the sausage is made. So I look at now, I look at this movie, and I say, oh, well, you could have cut this. You could have added this back in. You could have changed the story this way. So... I see now where it would have been a better film, whereas when I first saw it when I was a kid, it was, oh, more shark. And that's all yeah, I want I mean, out of but it. I think, I think that's what they went for. And that's, yeah. the, you know, maybe, maybe the whole idea was we're going to focus on a teenage cast to entice teenagers who aren't going to look at it this closely. You know, and we, we, our, our target audience is people from age 10 to 18. Maybe that was their idea. Maybe. I mean, it, it financially it worked for them. You know, they, well, especially with a summer movie, you know, you're more likely to get your repeat viewings out of teenagers. Right. But I also think where you really succeed generally, obviously this one's an exception to that, hmm. but I think where you really succeed is when you get the movie that it's just an event. Everybody needs to see it. Yes. You know, James Cameron did it with Titanic, and then he did it again with Avatar. Even did it with Terminator 2 to some extent. Mm. Yeah, or like uh, Tim Burton with Batman in 89. Yes. Uh, is it that? Now that succeeded on both levels because I think that was one where everybody wanted to see it, but you also got the repeat viewings out of the teenagers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I know for me, because when that came out, I was one of the people waiting in line outside the movie theater to get in on opening night. It was me, two of my friends, and my one friend's father because... He wanted to see it, too. He was a big comic book guy as well. So we were all standing, which you I never do anymore. I don't stand in lines to get movie tickets anymore because there's always so many theaters, and each theater has an umpteen screen showing it. This was a two-screen theater when that came out. So yeah. and well, that, that may be the finest pre-opening uh, public relations campaign I have ever seen on a movie. Oh, yes, I agree. Yeah, just just some of those simple TV spots. Michael Keaton dresses Batman just looking up into the light, and just you go up and you see the logo, and that's it. And just the, the logo was omnipresent. T-shirts, billboards, movie, uh, newspaper ads. Like, oh, everywhere you looked, you saw the, the bat signal. Yeah. The bat symbol. Either way. You know, it was just the closest thing I can remember to that, of, of all things, was when they came out with the movie uh, about Malcolm X. Just so many hats with the X's, shirts with the X's, you know, everything, uh, all, everywhere you looked, there was something. But it wasn't quite to the level of the bat signal. No, no. Uh, also, But you still had people wearing the symbol that didn't exactly know what was going on behind the symbol. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you had a buzz that people didn't even know why there, there was a buzz. Yeah. But then when the movie came out, you know, Certainly with Batman, I don't know what the final box office was on on the Malcolm X movie, but uh, on Batman, it was certainly a successful campaign. Oh yes, yes, very. 
Well, seeing as how... <laughs> yeah. Well, I would say since uh, we've gotten to talking to our experiences with Batman and Malcolm X, maybe we should wrap this up. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you say, my friend. Yeah, I, I think we ran it quite well in... Well, not into the ground, into into the fiberglass rocks on the barge that was uh, Cable Junction. But I, I think I just want to, you know, say before we close it out that for as critical as I think some of our discussion was of it, that was more the aspect that we talked about where we saw how much better this could have been. But that isn't to say that this was a bad movie. I agree. Yes. it. it this is a very watchable movie. Yeah, this, this is... This is the only other Jaws I have a DVD of. I have the original, and I have this one, and that is it. They're, they're, the other two spots in my DVD case are blank. I don't have a copy of this, and I don't anticipate getting one. And I don't think I'd want to watch it. At, I, when I first saw this in the movies, I saw it as a double feature. Okay. So Jaws, then Jaws 2, and it even then paled in comparison. Uh, so I don't think I would ever want to watch it that way again. But... If I were flipping through the channels and I hadn't watched yours in a while and this was on, I think I could watch it and be perfectly entertained by it. I agree. Yes. All right. Well, before we go, how about you tell everyone where they can find you out on the Internet? Well, if you're looking for me, you look look no further than 2TrueFreaks.com, where I am the co-host on Back to the Bins. I am a co-host on Listen to the Prophets. I am a co-host on Keep Em Flying. And I am the host with guest stars on Is It Yours? We review comics, we review Deep Space Nine, we review Firefly, and we review movies. Come on along and listen to us. And all of them are excellent shows, I can tell you, because I listen to every single episode on the day it comes out, if not the day after. Well, but, thank you for that. I appreciate it. But that's all part of my OCD. <laughs> I like to think that you just like them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I must like some of them. Well, I don't run into the Firefly show because uh, the way Andy had explained it to me initially is we're going to record all of them and then release them. So I just never even bothered. And by now you're so far into it. By the time I write you about this episode, you're going to be watching Serenity. So, again, why bother? Well, we, we uh, as, as it stands right now, as you and I record today, we have completed every regular season episode of Firefly and all we have left to do is we're going to do the movie Serenity and then we're going to probably do a wrap-up show. Okay. So as of this point right now, you have not seen Serenity? I have not. Okay. My, my son binge-watched Firefly when he saw that I was watching it, so he's seen all 14 episodes. We're trying to convince my daughter to binge-watch it and then we're going to watch Serenity together. Oh, okay. Uh, I enjoyed Serenity. But then again, I never watched Firefly until right before Serenity came out. Well, so Scott I, McGregor saw Serenity and then went back and watched Firefly. That's interesting. That is actually a very interesting way to do it, uh, because then you have some knowledge about certain characters that... I appreciate you couching that in terms of that will not spoil it. Yes that would actually affect your viewing of the series. Uh, and you'll, you'll, we'll see what I mean uh, pretty much when Serenity, when you get into the, the very beginning of Serenity, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Yes, I'm looking forward to watching it, but I just, like I said, I'm biding my time because we want to make it in a, into a family movie night. Yes, yeah, and actually it's, I should actually start watching that, start watching Firefly again, but right now, and... As we record this, dear listener, it is the middle of September, but last week on September 8th, we watched The Man Trap. Mm -hmm. This week, I believe we'll be watching Charlie X on the 15th, and I, I'm going to try on the 50th anniversary of each episode to watch that episode. Oh, that's a cool idea. So it's going to be interesting trying to figure out how to work anything else in. <laughs> <laughs> because Supergirl is coming back. The Flash is coming back. Yeah, that's going to keep me active. You know, I mean, we're we're all we're already going to be watching these other things. Kira's going to have two and a half hours of dance class on Friday nights. So yeah, it's it's going to be one of these things that you got to work it all in. Firefly may just have to get pushed to the side. 
Well, I know I, I finally have got myself back into, I'm about a month into it now of doing the treadmill every day. Aha! And I'm using that as my uh, time to do a Breaking Bad rewatch. Oh, that's good. That's a very good idea. So, you know, that, that's the nice thing is if you get embroiled enough in the show, then you don't even realize the time is going by that you're on the treadmill. Yeah, that helps. Yeah, whereas I'm the idiot that runs around my neighborhood, so I just have to, I listen to music when I go because it gives me a pace to run at. I used to do that many years ago, you know, with, with a Walkman with a cassette in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did find that that was very, like, it would just clear my mind. Yeah. Yeah, because... So, so I, I would kind of lose track of the time and the distance because I would just have this, like, just this feeling of, you know, for lack of a better word, serenity. Ha <laughs> Just where I was, you know, like, I, I wouldn't really be thinking about anything. Just keep going. Yeah. Well, I see, I... I have uh, a, an exercise tracker on my phone, which will give me updates. Uh, I have it set every quarter mile to give me an update. You know, uh, total distance, total time, uh, average pace, and split pace is what it tells me. Every So every quarter mile I get that update so I know whether I'm running too fast, not fast enough. And believe it or not, it's usually too fast, which is mm. interesting because I'm not... when when I'm running for distance, I'm trying to run more rather than run, than walk, than run, than walk. I'm trying to get to the point where I can run the whole way, but that means I have to keep some gas in the tank so I can't run as fast. Right. If if that makes any sense whatsoever. Absolutely, it does. Okay. So now that we've, you know, gotten into the Matt Goes Running show on Neozaz, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just... Uh, Thank you very much for coming on. This, this It's always fun talking to you, but this is one of the few times I've actually gotten to talk to you one-on-one, and that makes it even more special. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me, and I, I enjoyed it. It's, you know, hope, Hopefully we'll come up with other topics and we'll do some more of this, plus uh, we'll be doing some Is It Yours episodes. That'll give us some more one-on-one time as well. Yes, yeah, as long as Dr. Bill doesn't horn his way in. Well, the first one we have planned <laughs> is going to be you and Dr. Bill, but there'll be others. Well, that's because when you said, what do you want to cover, Bill and I almost immediately said the same movie. <laughs> so we kind of have to do it together. Yeah, I almost feel like I should bow out of it. No, because if you bow out of it, it's just going to be the two of us gushing like fanboys. We need some some perspective here. <laughs> the, the nice thing about that one, and I'm not going to even say what the movie is, because we'll just leave it up in the air, but the nice thing is... It is a very popular geek movie that, much like Firefly and much like Serenity, I've never seen. Mm. So you you guys are going to gush over it, and I'll be the newbie who has to comment on, you know, what what my first thoughts were. And I'm looking forward to that. I I want to hear your perspective because there there are some some movies like this one in particular where I will put it on. Great uh, a, a great example was the Sam Jones Flash Gordon from 1980 with a Queen soundtrack. I got that for Christmas one year on Blu-ray. So I will put it in one day, and Michelle walked in, what are you watching? Flash Gordon. Ugh, was what I got. And she sat down, she started watching it with me. At the very end, she looked at me and said, you know, that was actually pretty good. <laughs> so th- this is what the movie we're going to be talking about. It's another one of those where she'll give me that look. And some sometimes she'll be into it, sometimes she won't. It you know depends on her mood, what's going on, in our lives, etc. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. It should should be a fun one. And hell, I'm gonna have fun just rewatching the movie. And if that if that's not enough of a tease, people, to go listen to Is It Jaws, then just go listen to Is It Jaws because it's a wonderful podcast. Oh, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. That's it's become uh, they're all a labor of love. But this is the first one where I'm kind of flying solo, even though I have a guest star in every episode. But it's, you know, it's still my 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 baby. And it's actually the first one where it's your concept too, isn't it? Yeah, that's well. I mean, Sean, Andy, and I kind of all combined on the concepts for Keep Them Flying and uh, Listen to the Prophets. So I mean, I had input into them. Right. But Back this... to the Bins existed well before I was on it. But this one is all you. This, this is... is all me. And, you know, all me and whoever my guest happens to be that given week. Right. And they're all fun so far. I've, I've enjoyed every one of them. Even if I haven't seen the movie recently, I still enjoy listening to it. Well, there's a lot more to come. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. So, 
Remember, 2TrueFreaks.com, and make sure you click on that Amazon link if you're going to buy anything. And I was just buying some of these movies that Paul is going to be talking about, because you want to watch them before you listen to them. And iTunes reviews. Oh, yes. For always. Gene and for me. Yeah, and I, I'm i always very happy to get iTunes reviews. I don't care if you're another podcaster. Just leave me an iTunes review, even if it's a one star, as long as you explain it. That's all I care about. I, I want the interaction, whereas Paul's all about the five stars. I want the five stars. <laughs> All right, well, thank you again, Paul, and we will see you next time, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Hammer Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send an email to gene at thehammerstrikes.com. If you like what you've heard, please visit the Patreon page, which is located at patreon.com slash thehammerstrikes, and consider becoming a sponsor of the show. Please be sure to check out The Hammer Strikes on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and YouTube. The Hammer Podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network.